and was originally intended to turn our hearts toward God. And it becomes something completely different than that. It just becomes something that we do for the sake of doing it. And so the, the humor in this clip is, you know, the tradition of, of saying grace uh, before the, the Christmas meal, I mean, uh, has, has completely lost its meaning and, uh, and its significance, its original intent on the Griswold family, like, like everything else. You know, if you've seen the movies, everything is just crazy with that family. Um, but so, so today we're going to be continuing our, uh, our series, Clean Hands, Pure Hearts. We've got one more lesson next week uh, in this series, and then we'll be moving on. Um, one of the greatest concepts uh, that, that I've been able to embrace as a pastor and as an, ap- uh, an apologist, uh, you know, somebody who uh, uses philosophy and, and the Bible and things like that to defend the Christian faith, one of the greatest concepts I've learned to embrace goes something like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. If you're writing that down, let me write. Let me say it for you again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, this principle is certainly found throughout Scripture uh, in some wonderful passages, such as John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, where Jesus is getting ready to, to be taken away, and he's praying for his disciples. And so he prays that his disciples and the people who become disciples of his disciples would be one just as he and the Father uh, were one. Or in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, where Paul instructs his audience to demonstrate liberty and grace, uh, have a permissive attitude toward one another in terms of how and when each person wants to worship, how they want to worship, etc. But this saying was really first articulated this way uh, by a, a Lutheran German theologian whose life was otherwise you know, pretty non-distinguished. Uh, he, he, wasn't, he definitely was not well-known. Uh, his name was Rupertus Meldenius. And when I read that, I sure am glad that my name is not that difficult to pronounce. Um, you've probably never heard of him. I know I had never heard of him until I tried to figure out who first uh, articulated this, this very wise principle. Uh, in essentials, we as Christians uh, must have unity, oneness, with one another. And in non-essentials, things that are not necessary to believe or or practice necessarily, we must demonstrate liberty, grace toward one another. The problem is, uh, we're left with this question. What makes anything, any belief, any doctrine essential? Now, I'd say that a good place to start is with the doctrines which are necessary for salvation. Uh, I I sure don't want to mess that up. You probably don't either. It would be a really bad thing for us to mess those things up. But really, that's just sort of like uh, like passing the hot potato or, uh, or kicking a can just a little bit further down the road. Because who or what decides which doctrines are necessary for salvation? And this is actually an issue that came to a head uh, in the Reformation movement of the 16th century, uh, which marked the advent, the beginning of uh, Protestantism. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church had come to institute all of these traditions, all of these things that you had to do, all these hoops you had to jump through, all these things you had to do which are completely absent in Scripture. They weren't, they weren't supported by Scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church taught that uh, many of these traditions were actually necessary for one to be forgiven, for one to receive salvation. And so really, 
there was a lot of confusion about which doctrines were necessary, which beliefs were necessary for a person to be saved. There was no consensus, and it was really because of all of these traditions that over 1,500 years had just gradually crept into the church. Now, we need to understand that the early church recognized the importance of tradition, the important role that tradition plays. And that's why Paul said things like, uh, when he's writing to to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. However, these traditions that he's referring to were were, were, uh, ways of articulating the gospel. In other words, these were creeds that he was telling them to hold to. Uh, and they were held as authoritative because they were firmly rooted in the gospel message. They were, they were well established throughout scripture. But when we fast forward through history, you know, a thousand years or, or, or 1400 years and we get to the, to the Reformation, the word tradition had come to mean so much more than creeds that were rooted in scripture. Instead, it now referred to, yeah, some, some creeds, but it also referred to, to customs, practices, and rituals that believers were expected to do and had to do in order to be saved. And thus, we see that the idea of tradition over the years, over a period of 1,400, 1,500 years, had become less based on Scripture and more based on man's ideology, man's philosophy, man's thoughts, and man's practices. And for the Roman Catholic Church, tradition had become, and by the way, it still is, equally authoritative with Scripture. It had become equally authoritative with Scripture. And so the Reformers, guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther, I mean, everybody's heard of those guys pretty much. If, if you've been going to church for more than five years, you've probably heard of them. Uh, they, 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 these Reformers, they took issue with the role that tradition was playing in the church by their time. And out of their works, out of these guys' works, the Reformers' works, um, against the traditions of men, came the doctrine of sola scriptura. And that's, that's Latin. That means scripture alone. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone, which essentially means scripture alone is the highest authority, the highest source of authority for the Christian believer. Look at what Paul wrote in his, his letter to the, to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He said this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, given that Paul had told one group of people, the Thessalonians, hold fast to these traditions, and then he instructed the Colossians not to allow themselves to be taken captive by human tradition, we have to see that there is a very significant difference between what he said to the Thessalonians and what he said to, uh, to the Colossians. And that is, the difference would be, one is man's tradition. One is man's tradition. That's, that's what it all boils down to. Whether they were human traditions or tra- uh, traditions that were rooted in the teachings and the truths of Scripture. And so before I continue, I want to make sure that we, we have an understanding of, of something, and that is that traditions in and of themselves are what you would say morally neutral. That is, they are neither inherently good nor inherently evil. Uh, the difference between acceptable traditions and, and bad traditions is that bad traditions uh, supersede Scripture 
or neglect Scripture altogether or, or contradict uh, Scripture. Uh, but once you've eliminated the traditions that are bad, you've got two more categories to, to break the acceptable traditions into, uh, ones that are useful and ones that are not useful. Uh, so the question is, what makes a tradition useful? Uh, it seems obvious to me that it's whether that tradition draws us closer to or, or focuses our attention more, uh, more, more clearly on the Lord Jesus. Um, for example, celebrating Christmas. Uh, do we do it because that's when we believe Jesus was born? No, we don't believe Jesus was born on December 25th. But it reminds us, it focuses our minds on God's great love for us in that he sent his only begotten son to be like one of us and to pay the debt of, uh, for sin that we owed God. In fact, there, there's a, a funny tradition that I, I, I got to tell you guys about. It, it's funny, but it's, it's also tragic. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a friend who, um, who took a pastorate up uh, about an hour north of Charlotte. Um, and uh, he wanted some help. Uh, they had brought him in because they wanted to figure out how to reach younger generations. It was, a, it was an older congregation. And so you walk into this church, man, and it was like a 100-year flashback, you know, looking back 100 years. And uh, up front uh, of, of the, the sanctuary, of the altar, they had two enormous chairs uh, that almost blocked the pulpit completely. I mean, these were just these humongous chairs. And uh, I asked my friend, hey, you know, um, wh- what are these chairs for? He said, I have no idea. Let me go to the elder board. So he goes to the elder board, and they say, oh, those are the elders' chairs. Okay, well, what are they there for? I don't know. So he comes back, on. I don't know. I said, well, you know, my idea is if you want to kind of fast forward, you know, 50 years and just be 50 years behind, uh, take those chairs out because they, they really uh, block the, the front uh, so that people really can't come up front. And he thought, oh, that's a great idea. So he goes to the elder board and he says, you know, why don't we take those chairs out? Nobody ever sits in them. Uh, so why don't we take them out? And they fired him. They, they held that tradition, that dear, that they fired him. So was that a useful tradition? I, I don't know what the purpose possibly could have been, but no, that wasn't a useful tradition, and it definitely wasn't worth, um, wasn't worth firing somebody for. But you know, when we look through the Old Testament, we see that many traditions lose their focus over the years. They start out as good things, and over the years, people forget. And so they're just practicing these traditions out of, out of memory and out of habit, uh, out of ritual. And that's why when we get to the book of Amos, uh, God says to the people through his prophet in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I don't think he could have used stronger language. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings, which they were supposed to do, and grain offerings, which they were supposed to do, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. So the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now, I know that sounds really harsh. He's being really straightforward with them. Uh, you know, the Israelites had these traditions these rituals of bringing these sacrifices and offerings to the Lord on the feast days. Every other day of the year, apparently, they felt like they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. But on the feast days, they were supposed to bring their their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. But it became a meaningless ritual to them. It became this meaningless tradition to them over the years. It didn't stir their hearts 
to repentance. See, the, the, the purpose of the offering was to see that the penalty of sin was death. But what they were saying was, oh, wow, uh, this is a great reason to throw a party. Serious, serious stuff. They lived these, these corrupt, sinful, idolatrous life, uh, lives, and thus God wanted nothing to do with their offerings. And, and he tells them, quit singing to me. Quit singing to me. Take away from me the noise of your songs, not, not even the melody of your songs. The harps are, uh, have melody, but their voices are just noise to him. And this is a perfect picture of how tragic a tradition can turn when the focus is on external behaviors, things that are going on on the outside, rather than an internal transformation of the heart. Focuses on the external rather than the internal transformation of the heart. Tradition becomes an idol when we think that following a religious tradition or ritual is the same thing as following God. Let me say that again. Tradition becomes an idol when we think that following a religious tradition or ritual is the same thing as following God. And Israel fell into this trap over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Amos gave us this glimpse of God's attitude toward traditions that focus on uh, anything but Jesus, anything but God. Uh, And Isaiah gave us a similar uh, taste of God's attitude. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, uh, God says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. They become a burden to me. He's he's dreading the coming feasts that they're going to have. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. What all this points to is the reality that God hates anything that comes between us and him. And that he sees sacrifice as worthless if it doesn't come from a transformed heart, if it isn't accompanied by obedience and submission to him and to his ways, no matter how pretty or or valuable the offering or the sacrifice might seem externally, he doesn't want it if there's not a transformed heart behind it. God hates external religiosity when it's not driven by a transformed heart. Like anything that sets itself in competition with God for the throne of our hearts. When tradition becomes an idol, God hates it. He rejects it. He will not take it. And so he was telling the people through Isaiah that as long as as the people were were living in sin and, and not turning their hearts in repentance to him, their attendance in the temple meant nothing to him. It was an insult to him. It was mocking him. And so he was just going to ignore their ritualistic prayers. As W.E. Vine once wrote, quote, mere external religion is ever a cloak to cover iniquity. The conscience of a believer may become so seared that a person can practice religion while yet living in sin, end quote. What a horrible reality. What a horrible reality. And this was, this was the reality that Jesus was faced with and, and that he confronted, he took head on in uh, the, the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to, to Matthew chapter 15. Jesus had several encounters throughout his ministry with the scribes and the Pharisees. But one day, not long after Jesus had, had gone out walking on the water uh, and, and, and called Peter out of the boat to walk with him, uh, not long after that, Jesus was in a region known as 
Gennesaret, uh, when some scribes and Pharisees came and confronted Jesus. And they're there to accuse Jesus and to, to belittle him, uh, to maybe insult him a little bit in front of his disciples. They're trying to show that he's not worthy of being the person who's discipling anyone. And so Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That's a a strange thing to accuse Jesus of as a way of saying, uh, you know, you're not really worthy of discipling anybody. But what we see here is that the Pharisees and the scribes made the same mistake. It's funny how history repeats itself. They made the same mistake that the Roman Catholic Church ended up making, and that is attributing an equal or stronger sense of authority to the traditions of men than to the Word of God as revealed in Scripture. What scriptural basis did these guys, did these these Pharisees and these scribes, what scriptural basis did they have for accusing Jesus? None. They had no scriptural basis. They're appealing to the traditions of men. What they're trying to do is undermine Jesus, undermine his authority by demonstrating that he's not teaching his followers to act in the way that they were expected to act based on man's traditions. And so the tradition of washing one's hands uh, before eating bread or before eating anything wasn't necessarily a bad tradition. I, I, I try to, whenever possible, I try to wash my hands before I eat, and I wouldn't say it's a bad thing, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that if I, you know, for some reason can't, you know, if I'm driving or something and I just, you know, get fast food, uh, I don't think that I've offended God um, by not washing my hands before I eat. Uh, but what authority did this tradition of washing hands before eating have? Well, what power did it have to judge Jesus as a good or bad teacher? It had none. Uh, only God's word, as revealed in Scripture, would have had the power or the authority to judge Jesus as a good or bad teacher. But they're not measuring him against that. Why? Because he lined up with it perfectly. They had nothing to, to accuse him of if they're just looking at the scriptures. So they turn to the traditions of men, and that's what they are measuring him against. You see, when when Israel returned from Babylonian captivity, they added hundreds upon hundreds of all of these cultural traditions of the Babylonians to God's laws. They they, they brought them in. uh, They were imported from the Babylonians, and the Pharisees and the scribes viewed these traditions as equally authoritative with Scripture. And the type of washing that they were expecting the disciples to be practicing was supposed to have been a ceremonial cleansing that would cleanse a person of any type of sin that they may have incurred uh, without realizing it. Kind of like, you know, take your shoes off before you came in because we don't know what you stepped in before you came inside. Uh, So where did they get all of this from? Actually, take a look at Exodus chapter 30. Uh, in In verses 17 to 21, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So when they wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die, and it shall be a perpetual statute for them 
for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. So three times here, God makes it really clear who this applies to. Who does it apply to? The priests. It applies to Aaron and his descendants only. But uh, the priests, uh, at some point or another, they, they created this oral tradition uh, which extended this law, extended this instruction to be applied to all Jews who were to wash before praying or before eating. In essence, the authority of this tradition had surpassed their view of the authority of God's word. Do you realize, think about this for a second, do you realize what the implication is when we have a tradition that we view as more authoritative than God's word? It implies, without question, as a philosopher we would say it necessarily applies, meaning there's no other possible conclusion. It implies that we have exalted man's authority over God's authority. That's the implication of holding a tradition over Scripture. And that is sin. And there's some, some great examples of this uh, in, in uh, Christian churches today. Some churches expect you to wear your Sunday best. I've heard of churches where somebody, you know, a kid came in in the middle of summer wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and they told him, come back when you're ready to wear your Sunday best. And he never went back because of this tradition. Uh, have you ever heard of, of churches that don't allow their members uh, to, to play with face cards? Uh, who would have known that playing Go Fish could be, you know, forbidden? Uh, but there are still churches that forbid this practice. Uh, where is it in the scriptures? It's, it's not. Uh, in fact, there's, there's no mention of, of goldfish or, or uh, playing cards, you know, related to fish in all of uh, the Bible. What about churches that don't allow any kind of dancing? Never mind, just forget that David danced, okay? Just forget. Um, what about churches that don't allow any kind of dancing whatsoever? Again, where do you find that in the Bible. That's, that's an area of liberty. Some people may feel the conviction, wow, I, I just really shouldn't dance because it, it really creates a stumbling block for me. But other people should have the freedom to do it because it's nowhere explicitly uh, forbidden in Scripture. Now, can we just be brutally honest with ourselves here for just a minute before we continue? The reason all this exists, all, all these examples exist, and there are a lot more, the reason all these things are even there is because the church as a whole has this notorious reputation, this tendency to cling to tradition just for tradition's sake, without any real basis for doing so other than people's apprehension, uh, people's resistance to change. We don't like change. People as a whole don't tend to like change because it takes us out of our comfort zones, and oh, we love our comfort zones. Don't, don't even take me out of my comfort zone, right? But it's, it's not just the church. Let's be honest. It's, it's not just the church. It's people in general. Uh, for example, every time a new uh, Windows software system comes out, uh, for, for like at least a year, man, if you, if you look at the, the internet and what people are saying about it, they're just ragging on it. They hate it. Oh, man, I can't believe they, tr- they changed this. I can't believe they changed that. Jamie, he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, if, so for at least a year, man, people don't like it. But what happens after about a year? 
They get, they get used to it. They, they start realizing, okay, uh, okay, so maybe it doesn't have this feature that it used to have, but it's even better because now it has this other feature, which is a little bit better. Uh, you know, it, people get used to the changes. They, they find room for the changes within their comfort zone eventually. And so the accusation that Jesus and his disciples are, are facing here is of ritual impurity based on the traditions of man. And Jesus responds by pointing out their sin to them. That they have ascribed a higher authority, greater authority to the tradition of man than to God's word. And thereby, they have exalted themselves above God. Let's continue. Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now let's just stop there for a second. Notice that Jesus actually isn't uh, answering directly their accusation. Uh, he's going to get to that, but first he deals with the issue of authority. What is your authority? And of course, Jesus is going straight to the Ten Commandments. We all know, uh, you know, honor your mother and father comes from uh, the Ten Commandments. And then he quotes from Exodus chapter 21, uh, verse 7. The Hebrew in Exodus 21, 7 literally says, he who curses their father or mother uh, is to be put to death. And of course, to curse anybody, mother, father, brother, sister, friend, enemy, is the opposite of honoring them. And so do you think that the scribes and the Pharisees knew what Jesus was quoting from? Of course they did. You know, these are scribes. They, they, they copied down uh, the scriptures over and over and over again. So, of course, they knew what Jesus was referring to. But Jesus is showing them that they have willfully ignored these commands for the sake of upholding a tradition of man. They've ignored God's commands for the sake of upholding man's tradition. By doing that, he's not just, they're not just bringing man to equal level with God. They are bringing him above to a higher level, a more authoritative level than God is in their minds, in the scribes and Pharisees' minds. And so Jesus continues in verses 5 and 6. He says, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now notice that Jesus starts with the words, but you say. But you say. So what he's doing is showing that there's a contrast. They're, they're, they're doing something that's contrary to what the law, the, uh, what the word of God says, and, and what Moses had written, the, the one that they held in such high esteem. Moses, you know, the greatest. Moses. They're breaking what Moses had written. They've broken God's law, which makes them candidates for capital punishment. Oh, but, but they've upheld all these traditions of the elders. Isn't that worth something? Now, now, don't get Jesus wrong here. He's not saying that traditions are necessarily bad. Not even this tradition of washing hands before eating or, or praying. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad tradition. But what is the ultimate authority that they are turning to? Is it God? Or has tradition trumped God, and thereby become an idol. Tradition has become an idol, and this is something that we have to take to heart. Uh, we must constantly evaluate our traditions for, for two reasons. First of all, to make sure that they are biblically valid. 
because uh, things do get passed on that are not necessarily biblically valid. And number two, to make sure that they haven't become more authoritative or important to us than Scripture. Paul told the Thessalonians, test everything and hold to what is good. Test everything. And under the category of everything falls everything, including traditions. Uh, so uh, that absolutely includes traditions. So, you know, I, I have this flow chart that I keep in the back office here that I use for weighing uh, church traditions and activities. Um, at the top is this question, um, is there a specific biblical uh, is there specific biblical support for it? And then, yes, no. Uh, so, okay, if, it's, uh, if the answer is yes, uh, we go to the next question, which is, would it edify the body? Would it build up the body? Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 11 to 16. Uh, if the answer to that original question is no, we go to, would it glorify uh, and exalt Jesus? Uh, and if the answer is yes, uh, well, let's go back to whether or not it would edify the body. If the answer is no, then... No. Um, and, and that sounds really complicated for me to try to explain it. So let me just simplify this for you by giving three questions that can help us to test traditions and evaluate whether or not we've given too high of a priority to a certain tradition. And let's just, let's just assume outright that if a tradition uh, violates, contradicts, or just for whatever reason doesn't line up with God's word, when we, when we put it into the machine, it just spits it right back out, kind of like when you put a crumpled dollar bill in one of those change machines. Ah, that contradicts scripture, spits it right back out immediately. So the first question to help us evaluate whether or not we've given too high of a priority to a tradition is what is the basis? What was the original intent of the tradition? Now, a lot of church traditions have had really good, uh, biblically valid intentions behind them. And as long as scripture doesn't forbid um, whatever the tradition might entail, it might be a useful tradition for fulfilling the purpose for which uh, it was originally intended. Or it might not be. It may have been at one point, and it no longer is. For example, it used to be that churches would commonly have Wednesday evening services. Uh, in large part, Wednesday evening services have kind of uh, become extinct. They've, they've almost been completely abandoned and replaced with things like, uh, like small group, uh, midweek small groups. But ideally, both serve the same purpose, and that is to help the congregation remain focused on Jesus at, at around the midway point of the week. Um, the, you know, so the question is, can people consistently make it? To, to either one, or is one easier than the other? Uh, that's a question that every church would have to answer for itself and evaluate for itself. So the basis of the tradition is helping the congregation stay focused on Jesus through the week, which is a good thing, right? That's a good thing. But is it the best way? Is it the most useful means toward that end? Is the Wednesday night service still the best solution? I mean, Hopefully you see the importance or the benefit of questioning uh, the original intent of a tradition and just seeing if there's a better way of, of fulfilling that intent. Uh, is, uh, question number two, is the tradition harmful to anyone involved? Is the tradition harmful to anyone involved? More specifically, is there a good chance that if we, if we continue doing this, um, whatever this tradition might be, is there a chance that it's going to cause someone to stumble into sin? Uh, when I was growing up in the Lutheran church, uh, I remember the first time I took communion and realized that they were serving us 
uh, red wine, real uh, red wine. Um, and it, it tasted absolutely awful. I, I, I hated it. I mean, the, the taste I had in my mouth was like the most recent thing I ate was, uh, or had in my mouth was toothpaste. And toothpaste and red wine, just trust me, they, they don't go together very well. Uh, it tasted awful. And it, Besides, I'm not even sure if that was legal, uh, serving minors. Um, but remember, this was Las Vegas uh, <laughs> back in the day, uh, where alcoholism was absolutely rampant. Serious stuff. Alcoholism was rampant. In fact, my pastor was a practicing alcoholic. Um, and so given that the one sip, one tiny taste of alcohol is all that it takes to get a recovering alcoholic to fall off the wagon. Is it really the wisest decision uh, to serve red wine? Obviously, that tradition was creating a very, very serious, very harmful stumbling block for some. Not for everyone, but for some. And so for that reason, they probably shouldn't have done it. Uh, Question number three. Is God honored by continuing in the tradition? Now, just in case you were horrified by the video clip that I showed at the beginning, I I know that when I first saw it, I was like, oh, man, that's kind of edgy. I don't know if I want to show that. That's that's a little bit offensive even. And yes, it is. It is a little bit offensive. But that was a great example of a tradition that was originally intended to honor God, but which obviously didn't honor God at all anymore. That was a great example of that. It didn't turn their hearts and minds to him. It didn't cause them to think about their sin or about being closer to Jesus. Remember that Isaiah and Amos uh, both talked about how people in their day and age were essentially doing the same thing as the Griswolds. You know, maybe they got that, that video clip from, from reading the Bible. Who knows? They, they weren't honoring God in, in Isaiah and, and Amos' days, they weren't honoring God with their sacrifices and prayers. They were giving him lip service, just lip service. If anything, that was harmful to them. It was, it was harmful to them because it gave them this false sense of, of righteousness, this false sense of, of holiness, thus failing question two. Uh, it didn't honor the original uh, purpose uh, of, of the tradition, which was question number one either. Um, so instead, the, the worship of their festivals and their prayers mocked God because they focused on external behaviors rather than an inwardly transformed heart. God wants your heart. First and foremost, that's what he wants, and he wants all of it. He wants your heart. Anything less than that in our worship is just counterfeit. It's fake. He doesn't want it. He'll ignore it. He'll reject it, just like uh, he would have, I'm sure, with the Griswolds. God will turn his back on counterfeit worship. Jesus now turns his attention to the result of the error, this error that the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of. Verses 7 and 8, he says, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now we need to understand how serious it is to give as much or greater authority to man's traditions as we do to God's commands. It renders our worship just vanity. Worship in vain. Jesus could just as accurately, by the way, have said this about a large percentage of churches in America because somewhere along the line, 
this was founded on Christian principles. This country was founded on Christian principles, but somewhere along the line, so many churches have lost their ways. Somewhere along the line, some churches started placing a lower value on, uh, on growth and personal holiness from one another. Somewhere along the line, for many churches, spiritual growth became less important than numerical growth. Somewhere along the line, in some churches, they stopped preaching on things like sin and repentance and God's wrath. Somewhere along the line, we stopped fearing that the people that we love will end up in hell someday. Somewhere along the line, it became easier to make our faith about saying and doing all the right things rather than fully committing and submitting our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think at least part of this, part of all of this, can be ascribed to the fact that it's just so easy. It's just so much easier to make going to church on Sunday morning a tradition. It's so much easier to go to church than to be the church. It's so much easier to focus on external things rather than turning our hearts in repentance to Jesus and fully submitting our hearts to him. It is so much easier to go to church than to be the church. Tradition doesn't have to be a bad thing, but like everything else in life, it has to be kept in check. It can so easily become a God that we place in contention against the true God for the throne of our hearts. And so traditions have to be evaluated. They have to be tested. They have to be kept in their proper place. Why did God say that he hated the the festivals and the offerings of Israel? Why did he say that? Because they were a tradition that was, it was like artificial sweetener, by the way. You know, I, I like just pure sugar. Some people like artificial sweetener. I'm not trying to dog you at all. But it was like artificial sweetener. It might have tasted good. It might have tasted like the real thing to the people, but it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't the real thing. And God only wants the real thing from us. So Jesus has one more thing to say about this tradition of washing hands before eating. In verses 10 to 12, he says this. Matthew writes this. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? <laughs> Sorry, I got to laugh. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Uh, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, look at the disciples. They're, they're more interested in being politically correct and, uh, and, and, you know, making people happy, keeping people happy by upholding traditions uh, than they were about being serious, about surrendering, fully surrendering their will to God's word. And here's the hard part. Some people will be offended when the traditions that they hold dear are scrutinized and rejected because they don't line up with Scripture. But we must remember that something must give way when when somebody finds uh, or sees that tradition is more important than truth. Now, of course, we should not seek to offend anyone you know, I, I've come across Christians who are like, oh, I'm willing to offend because, yeah, the gospel's offensive, and yeah, I'm, I'm going out there to be as offensive as I possibly can be. No, no, no. That, that's losing the total heart of it. But the, the, the principle here is if the choice comes down to offending people or offending God, which will you choose? Which will you choose? It's better to be divided by truth than united by error 
when it comes to seeing scripture as the ultimate authority in our lives. And the point that Jesus was making here was that a person doesn't become morally defiled, morally corrupt. It's not sin to eat with hands that haven't been washed in accordance with tradition. But a person who beca- but a person does become morally defiled, morally corrupt when their heart is not submitted to God. Jesus goes on to explain later in this passage to Peter who's always the first one to ask questions. I don't understand, Jesus. Can you explain this? I love that about Peter. He's always the question, the guy who comes with the questions. So Jesus goes on to explain to Peter in verses 18 to 20, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here with Peter is that doing what might seem like the right thing or or things to do or say is not what makes us clean. It's not ultimately of utmost importance. From man's perspective, it might be the things that enter the mouth that defile a person, but from God's perspective, which is what Jesus is showing us here, from God's perspective, uh, which is really the only perspective that matters, by the way, what is important is what comes from our hearts, what's going on in our hearts. In other words, he's talking about our motivations. Why are we doing the things we do? Our attitudes. Are we doing what we're doing with a joyful heart for the Lord? Things like that. He's concerned with what's going on in the heart. And the danger is that we have this, this tendency to think that if we just try to, to do the right thing or if we, just, if we just keep saying the right things, you know, things that have been passed down, things that we've you know, watched other you know, good people doing, that we'll be pleasing God by doing those exact same things. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Again, it goes back to the heart. God doesn't say that he's, he never says that he's pleased with external behaviors. Instead, he's concerned with why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. Is it because of tradition or for the sake of, of gaining the acceptance and the approval of, of people? Or is it because we want to submit ourselves more fully to Jesus? And, and we're just sold out to pleasing him. The scary thing here is that people who seem to be saying and doing all the right things can just be lost. They can just be completely spiritually blind. That's why back in verse 14, Jesus left the Pharisees and the scribes alone. He says, these guys are blind. These these guys are like the blind leading the blind. What what good are they? What good are they? I mean, if you're blind, you know that you don't want a blind, uh, you know, seeing dog. I mean, that would be like the most ridiculous thing in the world. But that's the picture Jesus is giving of those who are following after the traditions of these men who were spiritually blind. It is a powerful and scary reality, spiritual blindness is. This past week, my heart was broken when I saw that one of my uh, philosophy professors from seminary uh, made this splash on on YouTube, online, uh, when it was revealed that he had converted to Roman Catholicism. He posted this, this video of, I don't know, kind of a, a testimony thing that he gave in front of a in front of a Catholic church, a uh, testimony slash sermon thing that he gave, and it was just ridiculous. It, it was it was so poorly articulated. His ideas, his reasons were all so 
ridiculous, so, so stupid. It was sad. It was sad. It revealed him to be spiritually blind as he tried to teach this lesson through John 6, showing that we must literally eat the literal flesh of Jesus and must literally drink the literal blood of Jesus. Totally neglecting the part where Jesus says, I am the bread and the life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Totally uh, skipping the part where Jesus explains this teaching by saying it is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, which, by the way, makes it totally obvious that Jesus is using his flesh and his blood as an object lesson. He wasn't saying you have to literally eat my flesh and literally drink my blood. Uh, Have you ever seen a Roman Catholic who has taken communion in the past? Have you ever seen them eat? Uh, We probably all have. And, And the assumption would be that they are eating because they're hungry. But Jesus said, if you eat of my flesh, you'll never hunger again. So obviously... That is not what Jesus was saying. Uh, but my, my, my former uh, philosophy professor skipped all of these parts of the text that make it obvious that Jesus was speaking spiritually, not physically. Why would, why would they need to do that? Why would, why would he do that? The answer is, is right there. It's right there in John 6. It appears to me that the only way somebody could do that, when it's right in front of them, is if they are spiritually blind. That's the only explanation I have for why somebody who is as super intelligent as this guy would do that. That he would trade in a religion that's rooted in God's word for a religion that views the traditions of man as being on equal ground with God's word. That's like going from believing that the world is round to believing that the world is flat. It's like going backwards. And so what determines our Essentials. What, ter- what determines the, the doctrines that are essential for salvation? It is not tradition. It's not tradition. It is God and only God in his word. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Friends, traditions will come and go with the generations and with the ages, and sometimes several, uh, several traditions will come and go within a generation, but God's word is forever. God's word is forever. What comes, anything that comes between human beings and God is not ritual impurity, but moral impurity. And that impurity is in the heart that resists submitting to God's will or God's word. God will not bless, God will not accept anything that prevents us from fully turning our hearts to him. When people follow their traditions uh, and, and view their traditions as being either above or equal to God's word, tradition has become an idol, and God cannot bless idol worship. We must guard our hearts from making tradition that, that's good, even good traditions, even biblically valid traditions. We must guard our hearts from making those traditions into an idol and thereby, thereby offering God nothing but lip service. He wants our hearts So test everything. Hold to what is good. God loved us so much that he has given us everything that we need in this life. There are two things that are referred to as God's word. His son and the Bible. And those are the two things that we need for this life. So may we live for the sake of pleasing God 
living by his word above anything else, by honoring his word and by being obedient to his son, submitting our lives to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that it's so easy for us to, to, to fall into this same trap that the scribes and the Pharisees fell into. It's so easy for this to happen because what starts out as good can so easily become corrupt. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of discernment to test all things and to hold to what is good, to hold to the things that honor you, to hold to the things that line up with your word, Lord. Lord, we know that you hate anything that comes between us and you, and we thank you that you love us that much. We thank you that you loved us so much that you would send Jesus, your son, your one and only son, to die so that we don't have to, to bear the weight of our sin and to bear the weight of your wrath. Thank you for such life. May we live lives that glorify you in light of that. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.